Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, our our text this morning begins in verse 9, and we'll extend to chapter 12, verse 8. This morning we have this penultimate text in this book, we'll finish it off next time. As you're turning, I just want to mention, hopefully you saw uh, the video that our ch- we sent out uh, that talks about this, this project that we're launching into in 2024. Perhaps you saw it in your Sunday school class. But a couple of months ago, our session voted that uh, in 2024, we would work as a church, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, to read the Bible together through in a year. Uh, and so to that end, we've got a number of resources that we're going to be providing to help support you in that project. Uh, we're, we're utilizing a, a particular plan that we've tweaked a little bit for us, um, the so-called Discipleship Journal Book at a Time plan that helps us kind of make our way through uh, sections of the Bible, 25 readings in each month. So if you happen to miss a week, you're not, not compl- uh, or miss a day, excuse me, uh, you're not messed up, you can catch up in the plan. But we're also providing resources, as I mentioned, including a podcast that will uh, we'll be showing up on iTunes and Spotify, uh, a, a podcast that Parker Tennant and I are doing called Three Big Things, um, basically a 15 to 20 minute podcast, three big things to notice in this week's Bible readings. So it's a, of a link that as you're driving your kids to school or heading off to work or doing some exercise, you can, you can listen to that, get three big things that'll prepare you for the week of your Bible reading. We have some other resources that we'll be uh, rolling out, and we'll be talking a lot about this in the coming weeks uh, in the run-up to the first of the year. But I did want to make sure I mentioned that in case you, you didn't see the video, just so you know what's, what's coming as we head into the new year. This morning, we come to, as I say, this penultimate text. In, in many ways, this is a, a summary before the summary. Uh, next week's text begins, uh, this is the end of the, or has in there in verse 13, this is the end of the matter. This is the summary of the whole. But, but in many ways, uh, when the preacher speaks to the young as well as the young at heart here in our passage, he's trying to summarize much of what he's saying. This book opens with vanity of vanities. This section closes with the same language from the preacher. And and what the preacher wants us to to be urged onto yet again is to be earnest, to to not waste our lives, to, to seize hold of today, and especially for those of us who are young, it's a, a glorious opportunity to, to seize each day to center our hearts and lives on our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But in order to hear this challenge from the preacher this morning, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desiring your help this morning. Indeed, we, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us once again. And Spirit, we pray that you would do that work which is peculiarly yours, the, this whole work of illumination, that you would illuminate our eyes of faith, that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Grant that it will be so, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 11 And beginning in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things 
God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life for vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of, the, of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and tears in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, talk not to me of a name great in story, for the days of our youth are the days of our glory. So wrote the poet Lord Byron. Those words come from a familiar poem of his entitled All for Love. And it may be that my favorite modern poet, the one who's known globally and has millions of people come to see him and hear his poetry, that would be the great poet Bruce Springsteen. Uh, maybe, maybe he was thinking of Lord Byron's words when he wrote, glory days, well, they pass you by, glory days in the wink of a young girl's eye, glory days, glory days. Maybe, maybe Bruce was thinking of Lord Byron, but then again, Probably not. But, but, but regardless, both, both Lord Byron and the boss are, are getting at, a, at the same point. Namely, for many of us, the days of our youth are the days of glory. Those were the days when we felt like we had unlimited energy and possibility. Those were the days when we knew the excitement of, of young love, of, of baseball, of freedom, those were the days when we thought about all the places we could go. It's important for us to recognize, as we reflect upon the days of our youth and those, those apparent days of glory, that the preacher here in Ecclesiastes isn't denigrating any of that. And far from it. He is telling the young, as well as the young at heart among us, something vitally important about how our youthful days can, can be truly glorious. But in order to see this, we have to step back, and we have to remember all that the preacher has already told us, as he's been trying to show us something about reality as it is, not as we wish it would be. The preacher's told us that, that life is a vapor. It's vanity, it's smoke, it's fog. It, it's impossible for us to grasp and to hold on to. He's told us, as those who live under the sun, that we, we find our lives filled with dead ends. We find that folly is ever near to us as we pursue what our hearts want when they want them. We find that the conventional wisdom by which so many live 
is not simply conventional, it's often wrong. But the preachers also told us that God calls us to enjoy Him and to enjoy His good gifts, to trace the line from the gift to the giver, to see that God has established the times and the seasons so that everything occurs according to His purpose and His will so that, so that everything might become beautiful in its time. The preachers told us to fear God as we worship Him and to look to Him for wisdom so that we might live well. Now, now, what the preacher is doing in this text is, is taking all of what he's already told us, and he's shouting to us, to the young and the young at heart, he's shouting to us, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Be in earnest. Don't trifle. These days can be glorious if you just pay attention to all that I've told you. And as the preacher is urging us along in this way, he has two major exhortations for us, especially for the young among us, but also for those of us who are, are young at heart. And those two exhortations are simply to rejoice and to remember. First, the preacher tells us, to rejoice. It's the very words at the beginning of the section. Look again at chapter 11, verse 9. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sign of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity." Now, friends, this is, this is pretty different from what most people conceive Christianity to say. I mean, many unbelievers think that you and I as Christians believe that what the Bible tells us to do is repress yourself, deny yourself, stay in your place under authority who will do all your thinking for you so that you'll be a lemming and you can be a clone of everybody else. I mean, isn't that what unbelievers think? I'll never forget, uh, many, many years ago now, I was flipping the channels, and I, I came to MTV, and I stopped there because the hard rock musician Marilyn Manson was on. Uh, and there was a, a group, he was being interviewed by Carson Daly, and, and there was a, 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 before a live studio audience. And the entire interview was fascinating. First, it was fascinating because I had no idea that Marilyn Manson could string sentences together like he did. Uh, I mean, he was incredibly thoughtful. But the second thing that was kind of amazing was Manson's own reflections of growing up in an evangelical youth group. You see, he grew up in a church of the Nazarene in central Ohio. And what he thought he heard Christianity to be saying was exactly that. Repress yourself. Deny yourself. Stay in your place under authority. Don't think for yourself. And that's why he rejected Christianity. But that's not what the preacher is saying at all. Rather, what, what the preacher here is telling, young people especially, is that, is that life is set before you with the possibility of joy and rejoicing. And the, and the possibilities for joy and rejoicing are, in fact, boundless. I mean, that's what the preacher says. Rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your eyes. Or excuse me, walk in the ways of your heart. 
the sight of your eyes. Now, this only makes sense if you remember what the preacher's already said in his book. Yes, rejoice in the days of your youth. Follow the sight of your eyes, even as you remember that God is sovereign. God's sovereign over this time, and he's sovereign over his world. God is the one, the sovereign God, who gives you all things richly to enjoy. Our food, our festivities, our spouses, our work, they they all come from God's hands. And so God calls you to and invites you to enjoy these good gifts, indeed, to to enter into this, this grand adventure into which he calls you. Because that's what this life is. There's great possibility and opportunity that's boundless. It's a great adventure of sorts. The Christian musician Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song many, many years ago now that expressed this very sense of possibility and opportunity in life. Those of you who remember the song, you remember Stephen Curtis singing, come on and get ready for the ride of your life. Going to leave behind long-faced religion in a cloud of dust behind and discover all the new horizons just waiting to be explored. This is what you were created for. So saddle up your horses. We've got a trail to blaze through the wild blue yonder of God's amazing grace. Let's follow our leader into the glorious unknown. This is a life like no other. This is the great adventure. Did you hear it? This is what you were created for. This is, this is a life like no other. That's what the preacher is trying to tell you this morning. The life that God has made for you is boundless. It's filled with opportunity and possibility. It's a great, great adventure. And so we should rejoice and we should, we should know joy as we follow the Lord into our lives. And yet, though this, though this life is, is boundless, teeming with possibility, there are certain boundaries. Because the preacher's not advocating a kind of mindless secular hedonism. No, we do have to keep in mind everything that he's already said about our times and seasons being set by God and there being a time for everything that enters our lives. But, but here he, he mentions two boundaries in particular that helps set some measure of, of guardrails for us as we go into this great adventure of our lives. And the first boundary is the boundary of divine judgment. I mean, that's what the preacher says in verse 10. But, but know, that for, or know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, we've seen this language of judgment before in Ecclesiastes. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, the preacher said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. We'll see the same language of judgment next week, the very very last words of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But here in our passage this morning, this language of judgment, this, this boundary reminds us that that while life is filled with boundless opportunities, we can't pursue life in this world like practical atheists. Practical atheists, not simply those who who reject belief in God, but those who live as though he doesn't exist. We talked about that previously, that even those who claim some belief is God can live as practical atheists. 
can live moment by moment as though God doesn't exist, that he doesn't enter into our plans, he doesn't enter into our lives, our calculations, he doesn't enter into our moments. That's what it means to be a practical atheist. Well, we, we can't live that way. There is a boundary, and that boundary is someday we will face God. There is a judgment day coming. Likewise, we can't live as fools. We saw a couple of weeks ago, as the preacher describes, a foolish, stupid life that's driven by sensuality, driven by our desires, driven by what we want when we want them. The preacher says, no, we, we, can't, we can't live that way. No, there is a God who sees us. There is a God who knows all about us. There will be a reckoning. That, that, that is a boundary. But there's another boundary, and it's the boundary of life's frustrations. Uh, the preacher says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're a vapor. They're smoke. They're fog. It's not possible to grasp these things. He, he says this here to remind us life will have its share of frustrations. Life will have its measure of pain. And that, that provides a kind of boundary to our joys. But we shouldn't see this boundary of frustration and, and pain as, as something impossible to overcome. Rather, the preacher encourages us to remove the frustrations so that we might rejoice in our lives, especially as we're young. Instead of being defined by life's difficulties, the preacher urges us to pursue joy. He exhorts us to rejoice, to pursue joy to follow after joy because God has given you this life. It's a great adventure. But the only way you and I will be able to live that way, to pursue joy, to rejoice in this, in this adventure that God set out before us, the only way we'll be able to do that is to remember. That's the second exhortation, and it's what begins chapter 12. You see it? He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. What, what does the preacher mean here by remember? Well, my friend Phil Riken puts it this way. To remember God is to live our own lives for him. It is to be mindful of God mindful of God in every circumstance, including Him in all our plans, praising Him for all His blessings, praying to Him through all our troubles. In other words, to remember God is to live all of our lives in a God-centered fashion, to, to put God at the center. Unlike the practical atheist who doesn't, who doesn't take God into his calculations at all, the way to know true joy, to, to know this life is a great adventure, to rejoice, is to put God at the center, to remember Him. But what is it about God that we're to remember? Or, or to put it differently, who is this God for us that we are to remember? Well, the, the preacher says, remember also your Creator. Why, why does the preacher highlight that about God? Why does he say, remember your creator? I think it's because he wants us to remember and orient our lives around the reality that God has made us. And so, 
has ownership rights to us. After all, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and those who dwell therein. This world that God has made belongs to God, but so do you and I as his creation. We belong to him. He has ownership rights to us. And as our maker and as our rightful owner, God actually has a purpose for us. He has a, he has a design for us. And what is that purpose? What is that design to glorify him and to enjoy him forever? That, that's that's the, the purpose with which you were made. That, that's the ownership instructions that are found here in, in the Word of God, that, that God made you so that you might enjoy Him. That is your highest purpose, and you will find your highest joy in this life as you fulfill your highest purpose, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him because He's your creator. He's your owner. He's the one who knows how you were designed, how he made you. And, that, and so that's why I think the preacher reminds us of this. He wants you to remember this particularly while you're young. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Friends, if, you, if we desire the days of our youth to be days of glory, as, as Lord Byron put it, that can only happen as we remember the one who has made us and, and live for him, to live with him at the center. But why? I mean, why should we center our lives around God so that all of our lives are, are lived in a God-centered fashion with God in our thoughts and our calculations moment by moment, knowing he has his eyes on us, we have our eyes on him. Why should we live this way? Well, the simple answer is this. We, we should orient our lives around God in this world because there will come a day when we will grow old and die. That's reality. Reality as it is. We should orient our, our lives around God while we're young because there is coming a day when we will grow old and die. And in order to help us feel this, to sense it, the preacher offers a, an extended description through a poem or a character sketch or a verbal portrait from verses 2 to 7. The preacher does this. Now, commentators disagree on, on exactly what's going on in verses 2 to 7. I mean, does the preacher here offer a series of metaphors that relate a, a decaying house in the village to a decaying body? I think that's what he's doing. Or is this instead a, a description of a funeral scene? Or even more, a picture of some kind of apocalyptic vi visitation where God comes to confront? Well, re regardless of what verses 2 to 7 are exactly picturing, this much is clear. These, pictures, these verses picture a dark reality. And the dark reality is the dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to the God who gave it. And so the reason why we must remember our God while we're young, 
The reason why we should orient our lives around God while we're young is there's a day coming when we will die. Life is a vapor. It's a fog. It's smoke. It's wind. The book opens with vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And the book ends, or at least this section before the summary, chapter 12, verse 8, the same way. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. All is smoke. It's fog, it's vapor, it's wind. We cannot grasp it. It just slips through our fingers. That's what life is. And because we will all die, because we are not bulletproof, because our glory days do in fact pass like, like the wink of a young girl's eye, here's the question for you. How will you live your life in such a way that your life is not wasted? How will you live your life in such a way that, that you will know joy for the greatest length of time possible? Well, here's how. From your earliest days, live your life centered on the God who is your creator and your redeemer. It's only in that way, as you orient your life, your entire being around Jesus, that's the only way you will actually know joy. That, that's what the Apostle Paul discovered. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about what he previously prized, position and prestige, prominence and pleasures. But then he says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In those verses in Philippians 3, Paul sets up a kind of accounting ledger. And on the one side of the ledger is all the things he counts as loss. Three times he names them as loss position and power, prestige, pleasure. He puts that in the loss column. In fact, he says when you actually add them all up, they actually count as rubbish, as off-scouring, not worthy to be prized. And the other side, on the gain side, there's only one thing he lists, knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. He's willing to suffer the loss of all things, in order that he might know Jesus, that he might gain Christ, that he might be found in him. Friends, if you don't want to waste your life, but rather for your, the days of your youth to be days of glory, then spend your time seeking to gain Christ, to be found in him. Be earnest in seeking Christ. Don't trifle in seeking Christ. Don't waste your days in not seeking Christ, but in fact, improve them by following after Christ. Don't waste your life. One of my favorite preachers is a man named Charles Simeon. I have a number of silhouettes of Simeon preaching up in my office. He was a prominent preacher in the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. For 53 years, he served Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge uh, and influenced countless of generations that came through the university, even though he faced great opposition for the first 10 years of his ministry. By the end of his time, there's hardly a place around the world that is not impacted 
by Simeon's ministry. One, one young man that he particularly influenced was a, a man named Henry Martin. Henry Martin was actually converted under Simeon's preaching, and through a chance encounter with Simeon one day, talking about a new missionary society that was developing, Henry Martin felt called to leave the the series of callings he was pursuing and to surrender to missionary service, and so he would go to India, and over six years of service there would evangelize many and translates the New Testament into a number of languages. But tragically, after six years of service, he would die of a fever. He was only 31 years of age. Simeon never forgot Henry Martin. Right above his dining room table, there was a portrait of of Henry Martin. And the story was told of, of Simeon that frequently, as he would entertain guests at his home, As he would be sitting around the dining room table, he would pause and he would turn to look at the portrait and he would say, there, see that blessed man? What an expression on his countenance. No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off of me. He seems always to be saying, be serious, be serious, Simeon, be in earnest, don't trifle, Simeon. Don't trifle. And then smiling at the picture and sometimes bowing to it, Simeon would add, and I won't trifle. I won't trifle. Friends, there's someone greater than Charles Simeon or Henry Martin here this morning. King Jesus is here. He has his eyes on you. Through the preaching of the word, you have your your eyes on him. As you see him and as he sees you, what will you say in the days of your youth, or your middle age, or even your mature years? He's asking you, what will you, do? what will you say? What will you do? I know what I'll say. I won't trifle. I'll be in earnest. I'll be serious. I don't want to waste my life. Don't you want to say that too? To say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to know your joy this morning. Grant me grace to be earnest in following after you. Remember, remember your creator and your redeemer in the days of your youth. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do desire to be earnest, to be fervent, and seeking after you, and seeking to gain Christ. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would grant us grace this morning, that you might guide us along life's pathways. Above all, Lord, we pray that, that you, would, you would chase us with your goodness and mercy so that we might know your joy and so fulfill the purpose for which we were made. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.